Welcome to Turf Dudes, show number 46. In this episode, we're joined by Steve McDonald, Chief Plot Sprayer of Turfgrass Disease Solutions, a private research and consulting firm based outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Steve is a respected resource in the Mid-Atlantic region for product development and agronomic consulting, and we're thrilled to have him on the show today. Turf Dudes is a Herald's agronomy team collaboration of Dr. Raymond Snyder, Dr. Paul Giordano, and Dr. Jeff Atkinson. Turf Dudes is produced by Brandon Clark. Enjoy the show. So welcome. Hey, Steve, we've got, uh, we've got an important guest in the house today and one that I know stays very busy, Mr. Steve McDonald. We appreciate your time joining us here on Turf Dudes. And uh, for the few who are listening in that may not know you, um, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and, and what you're up to? Awesome. So as they say here in Philadelphia for Sports Talk Radio, they say uh, longtime listener, first time caller, right? So I uh, listen to probably every episode of Turf Dudes out there. So thanks for having me here today. Uh, my name is Steve McDonald. I'm a chief plot sprayer at Turfgrass Disease Solutions. It's been a small bo- boutique agronomic consulting company since 2005. And um, you guys invited me to talk about annual bluegrass weevils today. So I'm going to preface everything I say is that I'm not a trained entomologist. I'm actually a pathologist. So if there's entomologists that listen to this, and I, my, my Philadelphia slang could be off my terminologies, but um, really just want to um, kind of shed some light on what I'm seeing with weevils the past few years for you guys. And I'm happy to take any questions you have. Sure. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you're in good company with a fellow pathologist and we're going to talk some insects. So we're <laughs> completely out of our wheelhouse here, but that's all right. We'll get it done. Um, yeah. Yeah, man. Listen, we're appreciative of your time. And, um, you know, as we speak, we're trying to keep this podcast evergreen. So I don't want to talk too specific about this year, but we're recording this in early May. We're, you know, questions are starting to come in where we're at with ABW populations. And it's been a bit of a wonky spring this particular year. So as you're, you know, in your travels and and even in your experience over the years, um, what tends to be some of the best indicators of where our populations are. I know there's the phenological indicators that have been around for years. There's some GDD models out there that folks can reference. There's obviously your contributor to the Syngenta Weevil Track. Um, In your experience, where are most folks leaning towards relying on and getting good information on where their populations may be at any given time during the spring? That's a, that's a great question, Paul. So these are tools, right? So phenological indicators, meaning using plants in your landscape surrounding you to try to time some other application or insect or even disease, right? Uh, it, it's a tool, but you cannot really uh, substitute for scouting your property with soapy water. You know, you'll see annual bluegrass people, adults in clippings, you know, in fairway clippings, when you dump buckets. So if a golf course does have the labor to remove clippings and dump them into a cart. Uh, you'll see that the adults walking around in April, March, April, and May, typically, then you'll see some pockets through the summertime months. And really, you know, soapy water, one ounce of a lemon-scented soap per gallon of water and dump that on some fine-cut turf. You'll see annual bluegrass weevil adults walk to the surface. And then when they're beginning to look for larvae here, so we are finding some larvae in Philadelphia. They're very small. Right now, It's May, today's May 4th. Uh, and farther north, as you get through the metropolitan New York area up to the northeast in New England, they'll, they'll probably begin to see some larvae you know, the next two weeks here or so. Um, but damage typically coincides with the week before Memorial Day for most people. It's almost a, a holiday type insect pest uh, where those lar- larger insects, are the, the fourth and fifth instar larvae are outside the stems. They're very visible to see with, if you cut a wedge, right? You'll see the, the rice-shaped larvae with the brown head capsule. 
uh, and that obviously they feed on a lot more poanu in the spring. But as far as scouting, you know, this time of year, it, it can be all over the place because you could have a population that still has some adults on the canopy as well as some, some larvae, say, in the lower stems. Um, and, and that really confounds a lot of superintendents' observations. Like, you know, what stage do I target? Uh, I like, you know, historically, the eastern redbud tree really coincides with a lot of good adult activity in the spring. For example, if I go to the mountains in North Carolina and visit a golf course, very rarely do they ever see 50 green, 50 gold forsythia because they'll have some warm weather. The forsythia will turn you know, yellow. They'll have some cold nights. Those buds fall off, right? So that historic 50-50, one, it's, it's good to look for, but it can be very difficult at times. So I, I tend to look sure. at eastern red buds. Uh, and the other really good is the hybrid rhododendron for larvae activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a bunch of rhododendrons here in my house. We actually do, we have a 10,000 square foot poanua area here at my house. We do annual bluegrass weevil research on. It's like clockwork. When those buds go about 80, 90% bloom, we begin to see damage. And it's usually the third week of May here in Philadelphia. So uh, there's some really good things. And one thing that frustrates su- superintendents is that this insect pest can be very dynamic, right? There's golf courses right. out there right. right now that they can't find insects. If you travel two miles down the road to another golf course, you could have 20 adults per square foot. And that's very complex because there's a lot of other factors there. It tells me that could be watering regimes, mowing heights, mowing frequencies, collection of clippings, not collection of clippings, um, blowing fairways more frequently than not blowing fairways, fertility levels, right, as far as density goes. Uh, So there's a lot of very complex things. And that's why I really prefaced everything I said as far as scouting your site is, is definitely sure. the best way. And um, yeah. So when Paul, we look I, at, I got a question. So go ahead, Raymond. Yep. Just for for the Florida guy uh, who doesn't know much about the subject, which stage of this insect imparts the greatest amount of damage? So Raymond, that's a great question. So um, the larvae do the most damage to annual bluegrass and bent grass. And uh, I know Paul had sent me some questions there about differentiating between poanua and bent grass damage. But the, the adults, we believe they basically in the spring don't do a lot of feeding on the foliage. Now in the summertime months, they obviously might, you know, peck some small holes in the foliage, but that's no more damage than say a, a real mower going across there. Uh, so the adults do very little damage as far as feeding. The, the key thing is that these larvae are feeding on, on the stems, right? So a meristematic tissue in the lower stem base is where the, the turf is growing from. And the damage, you know, you can basically peel the, the leaves, the entire leaf out of the turf once it's chewed by the annual bluegrass people. It basically is defoliating at one of the most sensitive points of the plant down the lower stem base. Um, and it, it's really damaging from a, from a standpoint that the, the larvae are feeding once they exit the, the stem where, they're, they're, where the egg was inserted, they begin to do quite a bit of damage in that, that area as a larvae. Steve, with going back to the, um, the models and, and you know, phenological indicators you talked about, and I think most folks are using those as a baseline and then certainly you know, monitoring populations, those that are familiar with the pest. As this pest continues to move further west and further south in some cases, um, you know, when we have anomaly type weather patterns in the springtime where we're getting massive fluctuations, you talked about, made a great point with the forsythia, you get a cold snap, a lot of those, you know, what was blooming starts to fall off. So it's hard to gauge what, in your opinion, throws off the tracking of these populations the most? Is it 
is it massive fluctuations in temperature? Is it significant amounts of rainfall during a short period of time? Is it drought, perhaps? Yeah, so, Paul, that's a great point. So it's not uncommon we have what we call bimodal adult activity, where you'll have the warm-up like we had in the Mid-Atlantic. You know, it, we, had, we had 40 days above 85 degrees in April, right? So you obviously will see a peak adult activity during those warm, sunny days. And then we'll have weeks like we're having now where it's not going to get above 65 degrees and it's very cloudy. Yeah. Next week will be 70, right? So you're going to have this, this kind of bimodal type movement of peaks of adult activity, then followed by subsequent egg laying, right? So you could have waves of the adult activity, which is, is driven by the heat. Um, so back to growing degrees, I do want to mention that um, we, have, we have, you know, uh, DuPont actually initiated Weevil Track when they launched the Celeprin, you know, quite a bit of time ago, I think 2008, mm-hmm. 2009. Uh, so we have some actual Weevil Track, you know, growing degree day data from all of these golf courses historically. And we have some, some really good ideas when peak adult occurs, when first, second instar larvae occurs, and then when third instar larvae. So uh, as a rule of thumb, we use 150 growing degree days as a peak adult movement, right? And then 350 as larvae movement. And the thing I struggle with that is many times is I think sunlight hours and day length could also be an important factor, right? So uh, if you have cloudy weather that's warm, you're obviously going to accumulate a lot of growing degree days. And um, so it really complicates a lot of that. So mm-hmm. those are just, once again, tools that we use and we will track to, but really a lot of our observations are from, you know, boots on the ground, looking around at various uh, golf courses and, and seeing observations. So uh, it's it's very complicated. You know, one of the things that really um, I give Pat Vidum credit, you know, she's one of the first people who really dived in the re- Weevil research in the 80s. And I worked with Pat for a number of years on Weevil Track, and she had some golf courses that she had had historically high annual bluegrass weevil populations with where the population would randomly just disappear. And I've seen this myself, but golf courses, and typically it it elaborates or it coincides with either major renovation work where they're moving a lot of soil around and maybe overwintering sites uh, or a big shift in water and or, and or fertility regime changes. So to your point about weather, right, if we have a dry period like we had the past two weeks until we got wet here in late April, that may prevent egg laying or may prevent mating. Last summer, in the summer of 2022, most golf courses basically from Baltimore through Boston received very little rainfall after July 4th. We couldn't find any of bluegrass weevils at historic population, historic sites, right? And every mm-hmm. superintendent you talk to would you know, say their insecticide program this year was the best they ever did. And I, I kind of made a joke many times. I was like, hey, you know, golf courses in New York that can't use some of these new insecticides they didn't spray anything new and they're still not seeing weevils. So it's kind of right, a, right. a running joke that mother nature and the weather is probably dominating a, a lot of the things that we don't really think about from a contest sure. control. So, so is there anything in, to that sense, is there anything that can weather-wise that we put our finger on that may prevent the overwintering of this uh, for, you know, 2022 was a light year, I, I think is a general statement. Is there anything that happened in 2021 that might've carried over into 2022 or do you think it's more just the weather pattern in 2022 limited their development? Jeff, that's a, a great point. So uh, I think it's it's cumulative, right? This is the thing I can't get my my head around is the annual bluegrass weevil has to be able to complete its life cycle outside of a golf course landscape, right? It's probably in wetlands, it's probably in lawn height turf that we don't don't see. It could be ubiquitous. And then we begin to maintain POA at a, 
half inch or less and irrigate it and spray fungicides and keep that turf dense. It prefers to feed in that site. And then we see damage because we are cutting low and that type of thing. So in theory, you know, one, one of the things I think about quite a bit is, you know, if it overwinters up far north as Canada, as far south as, as Carolinas and as far west as we think it's in Nebraska now, right? Um, we know we know it's in Nebraska, actually. Um, so it's one of those things that's very hardy to overwinter. Um, I think it's more of a management of the fine turf areas actually going to kind of dictate when they're going to have these these waves of egg laying and, and damage. Um, damage is obviously worse when it's drier because you just don't see the growth of the grass to grow through that. But if it's dry, maybe the females aren't either laying eggs or, or mating or the eggs aren't surviving, right? Because they might need some moisture, right? And if superintendent's managing on yeah. a drier spot. So, you know, if, if I was in academia, these are a lot of good questions, you know, you would want to ask. Right. Dan, Dr. Peck did some work at Cornell years ago. It basically showed they overwinter, you know, pretty close to the fairways. I mean, we really thought they didn't require pine straw. They could overwinter in, in three inch tall rough. Uh, I believe in, in Washington, D.C. and Virginia, Many times they overwinter just off the edge of the fairways, if not in the fairways, right? You actually soak flush in December and January. Many times mm-hmm. you'll find some, some adults in that, that, that area off the edge of the playing corridor. So it's a pretty interesting, very, very dynamic. I, I would, wouldn't say that uh, wintertime weather necessarily impacts them. I, I think it just prevents them from doing their thing because they, they are heat driven for sure. I mean, you say these things are all the way out in November, or not November, what I'm talking about, all the way out in Nebraska. I mean, what... Are these things moving around on side? Do you guys think, or I mean, how are they getting from location to location? Because it seems like it was such centralized in the in in the New York kind of region, and then now Nebraska, Detroit, Carolinas seems like they're exploding. So, so Jeff, I'll, I'll tell you a couple quick quick stories here. This insect is very mobile, right? We actually have established a population here in my house just by asking a bunch of golf courses that had annual bluegrass weevil adults in their turf. They come to their golf course and take their clippings in a black trash bag home with me. So what I do is I, I, I plant poannua. I we won't tell part- the regulators that story, but <laughs> right. So and then we dump the clippings on the poannua. We get 200 or 300 per square foot larvae here in late May every year. We do it right. So yeah. yes, to your point, sod is a pretty efficient way to move an insect pest like this around. So is clippings. So is other things. However, many times. These renovation projects seem to disrupt the population on a, a golf course. They have a historic golf course that's had them for 20 years. They do a bunch of renovation work, sod. And sometimes the evil pressure, there's not. It goes down very low. Other times, yes, it could be introduced through sod, right? But as I mentioned before, this insect's pretty ubiquitous. It's been reported in a lot of the states. And it's, it's not invasive, right? Uh, it's been here in the U.S. for quite some time. So it has to be able to com- com- live outside of a golf course, right? As I mentioned before, what coincides with the big renovation? Lots of water, lots of irrigation. Mm-hmm. So if there is a weevil population naturally there, and the golf course is all of a sudden going to be flooding sod and watering quite a bit, what does that watering regime do to the population, right? Could that attract more annual bluegrass weevils into the golf course landscape from outside of it? Um, so I, I wish... I, you know, I have soap flush saws and left sod farms where it's arriving on golf course and there's weevils there. Yes, that's a very efficient way to move it. That's, I tell a lot of golf courses, if you are doing some renovation work and bringing sod in, hey, it probably makes sense to look for some adults and, and or larvae in that sod that comes in before that pallet of saw is unloaded, um, just as an indicator. But uh, it, it's a pretty efficient way to move it around. But I always wonder what else is going on there. Could that moisture, because people aren't going to let sod dry out, right? So that 
right. could attract them as well. So there's, there's a lot going on. There. I, I don't want to point fingers at, at, at saw farmers. Most of those guys are doing a really good job with what they can. And, uh, you know, it's important talking point. If they do, you know, have some weevils out there to kind of educate them that, hey, you know, they probably worthwhile treating preventatively. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just a bigger question, too, because we have, you know, you see different, you know, I did a lot of my research in grad school on dogweed, for an example. And it's like that's spreading up and down the southeast as well. But what you can't point at one specific mechanism. But there's something else going on. I don't. I don't know what it is. You know what's allowing these things to to move and to distribute to ranges where they historically have not been. It's right. a big question. Huge question. I mean, a lot of poa grow in Chicago. A lot of poa grow in California, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 one of the things I think about is there's still poa annua throughout the entire southeast in Bermuda grass, right? And we don't see weevils killing poa annua in Bermuda grass as a as a beneficial, right? Now, if 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 Poa resistance because it becomes more of more of an issue. Uh, I have a lot of guys with Bermuda grass in, in, in Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware. I say don't ever spray insecticide <laughs> until you're treating grubs, right? And we'll see weevils decimate Poa and Bermuda grass fairways in the Mid Atlantic. They decimate. It's amazing. Um, so once again, there's still Poa in these climates, especially in the spring, when weevils could be there. And why isn't there, right? So there has to be some other factor that you know, sure. we're unaware of that. Um, so it's very complex, to say the least. Yeah, sure. So you, you talked a little bit, Steve, about this this pest being somewhat ubiquitous. And as it continues to spread or populations continue to grow in places where previously they weren't of concern, where do we, what do those thresholds look like? So if you've got somebody in Nebraska, in, you know, Michigan, Chicago, wherever that may be, and they're starting to concern themselves with this pest and starting to familiarize how to scout Obviously, health of the turf is one thing, but where do you kind of draw the line? And okay, now now is when we need to start making decisions and managing accordingly for, towards this past. Yeah, so Paul, it's all about your, your threshold for damage, right? So, you know, if the facility is extremely high end, has budget, you know, and no damage at all, not even one dime size fleck of turf out of out of place um, is the goal. I think if you have five to 10 adults per square foot, you're probably looking at spraying of some adults. One thing that's going on is right now we have more insecticide as larval side than we've ever had, right? With the introduction of Soprato and Tetrino, uh, behind that was Ferenc, and then, you know, some older chemistries like Matchpoint, and then, you know, and Doxycarb, Provant, and, uh, and then Dilox, right? So we have essentially, you know, six options really to go after true, you know, larval side uh, materials or, or larvae targeting. So, you know, if you are diligent about scouting for larvae, you essentially, in most situations, now that we have these options, could wait till you see a, a, some, some larvae out there and treat sure. accordingly as well. So, uh, and that's how a lot of golf courses treat for white grubs, for example, but right? they may not have time to get insecticide out and they'll wait and see some damage and go after white grubs, say in September, if that's the case. So, um, yeah, it's it's one of those things. I wish I could give you a defi- definitive number of adults per square foot. Um, but, you know, we know this insect, you know, the females can lay quite a bit of eggs after things are good to go. Um, so that weather following that that period really impacts how many eggs are going to lay. Um, so the densities could be important, but then not be important. So some guy, of course, superintendents I talk to, if they see one adult, they want to treat. Uh, other ones say, hey, I'm going to let them guys mate, lay eggs. I'm going to kill larvae, say, in three or four weeks from now. So there's not a, a really good definitive number. I think a lot of that is because of how complex this insect is and that egg lay pattern, weather. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and just the threshold. And, you know, for years, a lot of bent grass golf courses in the Northeast would let weevils chew until June, right? And bent grass was pretty hardy to that feed. And if it didn't feed at all, and golf courses were using that basically as a biological herbicide, so to speak, where they let sure. weevils feed on poannua. And what we found with that is if you do that method, you have to be pretty diligent about killing the larvae once they begin to damage the bent grass, right? That's usually in June or July. And maybe that's going to be two back-to-back insecticides, say, a month apart, uh, trying to knock that population down. Because the population dynamics tells us that if you let 100 per square foot larvae, you know, become adults again, that could be 250 or 300 per square foot for the next wave of damage, right? So, uh, and I'll tell you, from our research trials, very rarely do we ever see above 95% control. You never get 100%. There's always some lingerers out there. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that, that really confounds that I call it the population dynamics of the annual bluegrass weevil because let that build and the weather's good for them, you could see an explosion. You mentioned the, the bent grass part of it. I kind of skip ahead from plan here, but what's the how prevalent is that? I mean, I visited a few courses over the last couple of years where you see some annual bluegrass feeding on bent grass, but is that more of that's the only food source they got? They've eaten all the poa that's there and so they're going to eat bent grass or do you see that as uh maybe poa is the main food source but you know they're also damaging bent grass along the way it may not just be as noticed yeah jeff i'll, I'll give all credit here to the, the late stan zontek uh, i had the pleasure <laughs> of spending some time with stan in my my career actually I interned with usga years ago and uh, Stan had a funny say in the early 2000s he would say man i love filet mignon but every once in a while i have some hamburger right Right. Uh, so the the fillet for the weevil we believe, believe is is a poannua, right? Uh, the, the hamburger would be the bent grass. Um, so what we believe happens is that they are attracted to poannua in the spring months, and, and many times I would encourage golf course superintendents if they are managing a mixed stand of bent poa, if you're looking for weevil adults, look in the poannua. Like right now, early May, we're recording this on May fourth. We actually just did a huge insecticide screen this week with a new active targeted adults where we actually infested cup cutter plugs, four and a quarter inch plugs in Petri dishes and then sprayed them. As we were, we were infesting these plugs this week, the adults were burrowing down into the lower sheaths or probably trying to lay eggs in the poannua plant. So if, you're, if you imagine a mixed down, I'll get to my point that you asked uh, here shortly, Jeff, but uh, look for the poannua. That's where the adults are earlier in the spring. What we believe happens is that they prefer to feed on the poannua. And then as, as the summer moves on, typically July 4th on, that's when we'll see our most damage on, on the bent grass. And once again, I'm not an entomologist, but that would also maybe coincide with, we know poannua has gone under physiological stress at those points. Now, I don't want to give these female weevils enough credit, but maybe they are smart enough to realize that that plant that they're going to lay their offspring in has to survive for the offspring to survive. Maybe they will preferably then lay eggs in bank grass because it has better heat tolerance, better moisture retention. Now, we don't know this for sure. I know Dr. Kopenhoffer at Rutgers was doing some, some work with various different cultivars of bank grass where he found that there was some preferential feeding in various cultivars and basically probably more of the upright ones were like poannua were the ones where, where, where the weevils would prefer to feed into versus the leggy ones that got leggy. But mm -hmm. uh, it's really an interesting question. So uh, if you are trying to use the weevil for annual bluegrass weed control, I would say 
Um, you know, definitely look in the Poe annual first and then watch it for the bent grass, probably around July 4th. That second wave of damage, that those ones that are come back to the surface there, that's when we begin to see it. Uh, I've seen bent grass damage, I hate to say this, through Halloween in the Mid-Atlantic, I mean, into October. It's not uncommon uh, to see bent grass damage. And very rarely will we see bent grass damage early in the spring, unless it's a 100% mono stand of bent grass. I usually say a brand new establishment or a brand new build and the weevils are there on the prop property, you will see damage to bent grass early in the spring. It also tells me too that maybe we're not looking enough into the bent grass because bent grass is growing very well through June, July. Yeah. Uh, most years, healthy, it can tolerate the feeding to a, to, a, to a good extent as well. So there's quite a bit going on there. Yeah. I, I, we don't really have a, a good understanding, but uh, history repeats itself, right? Since the early 2000s, we've been seeing damage in bent grass. Um, the first sample I saw actually in a diagnostic lab in Maryland was actually in bent grass. I got pushed from the eastern shore of Maryland, and uh, it was a 100% stand of bent uh, that was pretty severely damaged by, by a really high population of, of weevils. Fascinating pest indeed, my goodness. Um, to complicate matters more, you know, when you think about the, the challenges that superintendents have, you know, for years adulticides may have gotten the job done completely. And, and obviously the reliance on the synthetic pyrethroids has been such that we've got a lot of resistant populations out there. So in your experience and your travels and, and working with not only the superintendents who are managing these things, but also the companies who are bringing new products into the market, where do you see the future with treating adults particularly? Because we're running out of options, it seems, for that particular stage of the pest. Paul, great question. So, yeah, historically, you read any textbook about weevils and it says, you know, kill the adults in the spring. and You have no problems come up July, August, September. Right. Uh, so we know that this insect pest is basically evolving in front of our eyes. Right. The analogy I use is Poe annua. Right. First year, Poe goes to seed, terrible plant. You mow it, you spray it, you regulate it. It turns into this pretty awesome plant a few years that you mow it 090 and roll 20 times a week. And um and I, I like to think about the weevil as a very similar evolution process where, you know, it, it used to be these generations and these waves. If the weevil was truly generational in 2023, it would still be just that. If you killed the adults in April, May, you wouldn't have these so-called generations in July, August, right? Mm -hmm. That kind of gets me thinking a lot about this population. Like it has to be outside of fairways, roughs, and kind of coming in waves over time. Sure. Uh, so your point about the pyrethroids, yeah, they're, they're, they're cheap. They're easy to use. There's no odor, right? And chlorpyrifos and most of our organophosphates are, are, are gone in most states. Um, not all of them, but most of them. So we are limited to the adult targeting insecticides, with the exception of the newer uh, chitin synthesis inhibitor um, IGRs, like Soprato, Nova Yularam. And we are looking at other IGRs that have similar levels of activity on the adults, right? Now, it doesn't kill the adults, basically renders them unable to produce offspring many times. We've seen some interesting things with adult timings, but we see larvae control, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's a very different philosophy than applying a nerve toxin insecticide. When you see a bunch of adults in, in April and early May, depending on where you are, and then you pick them up dead in the buckets, right? On the golf yeah. course, right? Yeah. Very different, similar timing, different idea as far as control goes. So uh, I think the, the days of applying insecticides and like like having a mass you know amount of dead uh, weevil adults on the on the turf surface is probably um, you know limited here for another few years. But the good thing is is most of our newer insecticides that we're working with have really good activity on the larvae, 
and uh, that's really uh, good to see. One thing I would encourage any golf course superintendent to really think about is, you know, integrated insect pest control, right? When I say integrate, I mean ants, chinch bugs, white grubs, lepidopnia, leps. Uh, so what we saw in the past five years, if we've seen golf courses, you know, target more larvae, is we see these secondary insect pests like black turkey tenius, right? Mm -hmm. Now, BTA, they overwinter as true adults, like the weevil does. So what if... For the past 20 years, a golf course have been using a pyrethroid and probably has resistance to weevils, but maybe not resistance to other insect pests. Stops applying pyrethroids and that has an outbreak of another insect pest. And unfortunately, I've seen 15 or 20 cases of that where all of a sudden this insect pest that's not on a super intense radar that I saw back in the 90s as a kid working on the golf course and took me 50 minutes to figure out what it was. Now I see it now. Um, it probably would have been controlled by that insecticide. So one of my, you know, pieces of, you know, I think about with, with these pyrethroids is, you know, there are other uses for them mm -hmm. in that integrated program. And I would encourage most superintendents to think about when you spray those materials, you're probably exposing them to weevils in that landscape as well. So don't overuse them for other insect pests, but consider that timing, right? Uh, just like that, you know, unintended consequences. So what are the unintended consequences of using that newer larval side in May? not putting any insecticides out that could, you know, have chinch bug activity or BTA or cutworms. So sure. a really interesting phenomenon. Just like, you know, all of a sudden you switch, you know, a, a target, you're going to see other, you could see other things. And that, that's my, my big talking point. Sure. Yeah, great point. Great point. It's interesting. So once you have the damage and what's the, what's the recovery program look like? What's the best management practices post-damage for a for superintendent? You know, Jeff, great question. So it's funny, you know, every year in May, we, in early June, we, we have these untreated poenua plots here for research and they look terrible. We have, you know, 65% what I call insect feeding damage, right? The poenua is thinning out, you know, algae comes into the plots and they're just, they're thin. Uh, and inevitably, if you water that poa, we fertilize that poa a little bit, and guess what happens? About 95% of it recovers, right? Yeah. So it, it's it, it's interesting. If you're patient with recovery of poenua, it typically will tiller back out. takes a month or so to really get dense again. Uh, many times on putting green turf, it's these small little pits. So, you know, it looks like, you know, somebody took a, you know, a pencil point and made, made, made small holes where the insects are feeding. Uh, birds will sometimes pick on the, the, the uh, larvae and the, the adults as well. Uh, but the damage recovery, you know, in bent grass is a little easier because it, it will recover from stolons and uh, really tiller back out. The nice thing about bent grass damage is it, it heals a lot quicker than poenua damage. Poenua is very, very slow, probably a month, three weeks to a month until it's fully recovered. Bent grass, if you control the insect, you knock the population back, stop the feeding, usually two weeks. Uh, for those of you looking for damage on bent grass, particularly like teas, for example, which teas are a hot spot for weevils because they got many golf courses that irrigate them regularly, right? Because they're not going to chase wilt on a tea box. So there's more moisture on tea boxes is the bent grass is very uh, traffic intolerant, meaning that if you have, say, 120 golfers that they play from the same spot on the tees, it'll be tore up, look wilty, look kind of reddish, bronze, and orange in color. And if you take your hand and you rub across the bent grass, you actually will get the peel up and you cut into there, you'll see some larvae. So I, I guess your point about recovery is, you know, it's traffic intolerant, um, fairways and tees in particular um, but um, a little fertilizer maybe a tenth of a pound right a couple of applications make sure you do water your, your insecticide in 
Uh, and then if there is adults still in the landscape, you know, making sure you follow up uh, in a few weeks and, and look for some larvae or you retreat at that point. So, Steve, I think we're almost ready to wrap up. You mentioned something there. I wanted to maybe get your inside tips and tricks. So you talked about watering insecticides in. You know, obviously, following the label instructions is critical with any of these products because they do vary in terms of how they should be applied and, and how they, they're they optimized. But in, in your experience with some of these, be it adulticides or even larvicides, what are some of the things you've come across guys are doing that optimize performance, be it an adjuvant? wetting agents, watering these in for a particular, letting it sit, then water in or watering right away, whatever that may be, just something that you could offer that may go beyond what's on the, the traditional label. Yeah, Paul, great question. So it's interesting. You know, I honestly believe when you're targeting annual bluegrass people, adults, so make sure I'm clear, this is adults. If you soak flush, they are in the lower stems, right? They are not up in the foliage, right? Unless you soak flush them and bring them out especially early in the morning when most golf courses do their applications. Now, if you were willing to and able to spray at two o'clock on a 75 degree sunny day, that may change, right? And uh, I've had many conversations with a lot of, uh, of researchers and superintendents that do rinse their adult targeting materials into the lower stems with say, you know, a 10th of an inch of irrigation. So I have no problem with watering, you know, those in if the label allows. It's not too much. I wouldn't apply those in the rain, rainfall, obviously, but irrigation is a whole different ballgame. Now, we, we have our most amount of data with Ferentz, right? Ferentz has been on the market for the longest of most of our, our I call it modern larval sides, right? Uh, and Dr. Mike Agnew from Syngenta did a lot of basic research. He did mowing research with it. Can you mow within you know, an hour, 24 hours? And then how does post-application irrigation impact this insecticide? We did a lot of work for, for Dr. Mike. And um, you know, we looked at uh, a lot of different regimes and basically we found with Ferentz, uh, which is a diamide, right? Uh, it had to be watered in within 24 hours and prior to being mowed, right? So that's pretty obvious, right? Where that question came up was many superintendents want to spray their greens in the morning and some go back in the afternoon and mow their collars. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the question came up, if I mow my collar at say, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning after I spray the whole entire greens complex at 8, 9 a.m., will it impact control? We saw about a 60% reduction by mowing the turf before it was watered in. So my general suggestion is with most of these, these diamides, we've done some recent work with Tetrino, very similar. It must be watered within 24 hours of application. Uh, I tell most superintendents, if you want to tank mix it with something you want to dry, that's fine. Uh, and then the newest one, you know, is Suprata. We've done a little bit of watering in work with that one. Uh, if you're going to go after larval with Suprato, this is important because Suprato could be timed as an adulticide uh, not a true adult side, but at adult timing uh, or a larval timing, I would definitely 100% water it in for larvae for sure. So say like early May through mid, mid to late May, if you are going to use Soprato, I'd water that in based on our research. We did some interesting work last year with Soprato. The rate was one gallon per acre. We looked at different timings for watering in, and we found for adults that we didn't need much water at all. We, we had very good control with, with, with no water. However, I want to point this out. We did have rainfall within three days of the, of the application, right? So if you applied insecticide and say you went 10 days with no rainfall, that's going to act a lot different than mm -hmm. our research trial we did. And this is why it's one year and one study, right? So uh, follow a label. Generally speaking, I, I don't think you're harming anything with, with a tenth of an inch of, of, of post-application irrigation, whether you're going to use, you know, adulticides, targeting adults. 
uh, or a little bit more water going after going after larvae with, with most of these insecticides. So um, really want to think about, you know, the, what you're targeting as your key and then uh, look at the irrigation after the application. Good stuff. Great, great advice. Well, unless anybody else has any questions, I think that about covers it. Steve, we appreciate your time. I know you're busy, a wealth of knowledge. Certainly, I know our listeners are going to appreciate all this information. So all the best to you this summer and we'll be seeing you soon, I'm sure. Awesome. Good luck out there. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. That wraps up our interview with Steve McDonald. A sincere thank you to Steve for his time. This show would not be possible without the willingness and cooperation of folks across our industry willing to share their stories with us. Turf Dudes exists to communicate important research findings and turf management trends to turf grass managers as part of Harold's mission to grow a better world. If you enjoy the show, we want your feedback. If you have a topic you'd like for us to address or a person you'd like to hear from, please send it to us at turfdudes@heralds.com. That's T-U-R-P-H-D-U-D-E-S at heralds.com. While you're at it, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes, YouTube Music, or SoundCloud. We'll see you next time.